0: Me. Open us a prayer, Lord. Thank you for this time to gather together as your people in your community, and um, take up uh, holy matters, eternal matters. Lord, we we believe that doctrine matters, and and it's significant. And um, what we think about you, how we view the scriptures, all these things shapes our lives, and so. I pray that you would use, not just today, but this whole month of May together, uh, to form our minds, the renewal of our minds, not just as intellectual exercise, but as an overflow. And ultimately, Lord, considering what we're talking about um, this month, ultimately they would overflow into worship. Uh, Lord, be with us and uh, help us to uh, process things well and humbly. Through Christ we pray. Amen. So uh, if you are new to our church within the year, uh, you may not know what this is, or if you've been around and never came to a May term. uh, Several years ago, our uh, leadership, the elders decided um, that they would like a platform for uh, me as kind of the lead teaching pastor to be able to... Uh, do some teaching. Um, you obviously hear preaching often and occasionally, and there's some opportunities for me to do some teaching. But uh, that that one of my roles at Tates Creek is to be the, uh, um, the 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 lead teacher preacher of the church, and so it's important for me to have opportunities to do some of that teaching. And so the idea was to take some of the things that we get. The most questions about here at TCPC, and it's just take a month off from adult and teenage Sunday school. Take a month off, gather in one room, and let me teach on those different subjects. Um, and it's and it's good to do this uh, together here. But a big another big part of it is to get these things recorded and online so that they can become a resource for us for you um, to share. And when we get those questions, we can have people listen. So I think it began. I think. Goodness, I think we're maybe in the, the uh, fourth year of doing this. I think so, yeah, because the first, the first time we did a, a series on our practice of covenant baptism, infant baptism, uh, we, did a, uh, we did a series on kind of the Reformed view of salvation, election, predestination, all of that crazy stuff, we believe. Um, last year, we did one on covenant theology. And uh, this year, we're going to pick up a topic. That has more, perhaps you could say it's certainly a doctrinal theological topic, but it has more uh, practical implications and applications, and it is the study of a theology of worship. Uh, obviously, um, you um, if you're coming from another tradition, which uh, every foundations class we do now, it's that. Uh, there are very few people coming. Uh, To us from a Reformed Presbyterian background. So, if you're coming from another tradition, there are doctrinal stuff that you're kind of processing. But another big one is worship stuff. Um, We obviously have a very high theology of worship. Um, It's we we totally understand that in the current climate of Christian worship, uh, we are a little bit different, and um, and we're okay with that tension. We're, we, we try to do it well, we try to embody it well, and we try to explain it well. And so uh, this is going to be uh, my attempt to give uh, a teaching um, explanation, one might even say defense, for worship. And when I speak of worship, I am speaking of uh, that holy hour and 15 to 20 minutes uh, between the call to worship and the benediction where, um, do you need me? No, you're just, okay. There's a lot of places to sit down. You just came down the the aisle like, okay. Thought I was in trouble. Um, What was I talking about, Mark? Worship. Worship. Before Mark rudely interrupted. Um, We are talking about that specific time, what we do here. Uh, both here and our downtown campus. We're going to talk a, talk a little bit about that, too. Um, but today is going to be an introduction to the theme of worship. Maybe maybe you could say a, a theology and definition of worship. And here's how I'm going to come about it. I'm going to look at worship broadly defined, uh, because, uh, as you know, the Scriptures speak of worship not just as the gathering of God's people for corporate worship, um, but in a very broad category. So we're going to talk about worship broadly defined And then, particularly defined, we will get into um, a particular definition of what we do here when we gather on the Lord's day. So let's just start uh, with it kind of broadly defined, just the whole concept and idea of worship. Um, In Scripture, there are two, I guess you could say, groups of, uh, of Hebrew and Greek words that we translate worship, groups, meaning there's kind of a family of words in both Hebrew and Greek that we translate worship. And it and it has consistently it has two, uh, two meanings. One is labor, and the other is bowing. Now you might see that that's that's an interesting way to conceive of worship, but that's what it is. Labor, that worship is a service that we perform. It is something active. it is something we do. So specifically in the scriptures, our labors unto God is a form of worship. The second way um, the second way it, it, it takes place is bowing, um, bowing the knee, um, which of course is the imagery of reverence, honor, revering, praise, these things. Um, so, so it's it, biblically defined. You can you can think of worship as the labor of honor, um, the labor, the work of giving praise. It's an active pursuit of ascribing worth to something. English in English, worship comes from the word worth, and that that fits well. What are we doing in worship? We are ascribing. That's the labor, the worth of something. The honor of something. Now we do this not just for God, obviously. Um, There is a sense in which I should appropriately worship my wife. I should ascribe worth and value to her. There is a sense in a healthy way we should uh, worship our children. Again, not idolatry, but in a sense that we should ascribe worth and value to them, that that should be a labor of our lives, that we are these beings created to go about ascribing worth to those things that are worthy. Now, the problem is, and we won't get into this, but the problem is, is that when I take my wife and ascribe to her wife, or, you, or maybe you're single here, the concept of marriage, and I, I ascribe to that ultimate worth, that's idolatry, Right? I labor to make marriage, my spouse, or the concept of marriage, my ultimate worth and value. Like you look at my life and the labors of my life and you can see that is my ultimate worth. Or our children, to use that example that I use. There's nothing wrong with praising them. There's something very wrong with ascribing to them ultimate worth. And so we are these creatures who worship, who ascribe worth, but we are created to ascribe ultimate Worth. It is the labor of honor, ultimately, to God, and worship is a serious, significant. Um, I would even go so far as the very reason of creation attribute. Um, that worship is at the very heart of existence. If if you want to know, I mean, we say this in the church, but um, in the Reformed church, but. Um, maybe you never conceived of it this way. If you want to know why God, why did God create? Why did he make things? Um, It was not because he needed anything. He is completely satisfied and sufficient within himself. It's not because he was lonely. He is completely satisfied in the fellowship of the Trinity. It is because he literally wanted to create something to praise him. He created all things for his glory. So literally, the entire reason for your existence, trees' existence, birds' existence, mountains' existence, galaxies' existence, the entire reason for all of it is to ascribe worth to God. That's what we mean when we say you were created to glorify God or God does all things for His glory. That's His motivation in all things. Now, what this means when we say that we are created to glorify God is that all of life is, in a sense, worship. That, that's, the, that's the broad definition. Is that the way, now I know it doesn't work this way because of our idolatry and sin, but the original design is that all of life is worship. In fact, the redemptive call of the Apostle Paul is to get back to that. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. That's the aim, that's the goal of redemption. So God created us for His glory, to live our lives at all times for His glory, indeed, all of creation, to at all times praise His name. Now I'll pause here to address maybe an objection that is often comes up within the reform, when, when, when people are encountering this reformed understanding of God doing all things for His own glory, and ask, "Is that not wrong?" Um, this was one of C.S. Lewis's biggest hang-ups. He read the scriptures. And uh, read the Psalms where God is demanding the praise of His people. And He said it sounded like an old woman seeking compliments. Is it wrong for God to say, all things exist for my glory? You were created to praise me. Well, that is only wrong if you are not worthy of worship. If you are worthy of ultimate worship, if you are ultimately worthy, then it would be wrong not to call you to praise Him. It would be unloving not to call us to worship Him. In other words, He must call us to worship Him if He is to be God. In fact, take a step further. He must worship Himself if He is to be God. Literally, the reason why all things exist for the worship and glory of God is because God exists for the worship and glory of God. God worships Himself. And now we really start to say that sounds weird and vain. But I would ask you, what is sin? Is sin not, is sin not um, idolatry? Worshiping that which is not ultimately worthy of worship. Replacing God with anything. For me, again, for me to love my children more than God, to worship career more than God. This is the definition of sin. It's taking what belongs to God and giving it to anything else. Well, what if you're God? What if you're God? Then it is evil. It is sinful. To worship anything higher than yourself, to be God, is to be the one existence that exists for his own praise and worship and calls us to do that. And it's loving for him to do that. Again, what is love? Love is I want what's best for you, and I'm going to fight for that. Well, what's best for you? Well, you were created to worship and glorify God, so what's best for you is to glorify God. So it's loving for God to say, glorify me, praise me. That's actually what's best for you. That's actually what you are made to do. So this God-centered view of God and creation at first appears to be offensive, but in the end of the day, it is exactly what God has created all things to do. And it must be said that we cannot turn off the worship instinct. What I mean by that is worship is inevitable. That's what you were created to do. You are doing it right now at all times. What's wrong is worshiping other things ultimately. What's wrong is when we replace anything, if we replace God with anything as our ultimate praise and worship. So you cannot turn off your worshiping instinct. You're going to worship something. What the call is is, is, is that that worship would be re- redeemed back to its original resting place, which is God. And by the way, when God is loved ultimately, everything else is loved rightly. To love to love, and worship anything other than God, you will destroy that and you'll destroy yourself. So whatever your idol is, you're going to destroy it. It's going to destroy you. Then to say repent of that idolatry is not to say don't love that. It is to say I will love God ultimately. And by love, loving God ultimately, it rightly orders my other loves perfectly. So to worship God ultimately creates a person who loves things rightly Proportionally, so I love my wife rightly when I love God more than my wife. It's like to, to worship God is like the sun at the center of your soul, and everything that gravity perfectly orbits. Um, everything perfectly orbits around the weightiness of that glory. So, worship is at the heart of existence, at the heart of our very God, and because of that, worship becomes the meta narrative of the entire story of Scripture. So here's the story of Scripture. You often hear us talk about it as creation, fall, redemption. God created all things. We fell. God's redeeming all things. Add one more step, glorification. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Well, that's true, but what is the overarching reason for that? What is the overarching pattern for that? And it is worship. Worship is the the meta-narrative, the greater narrative of all of Scripture. And it goes like this. Creation. God, God created us to worship Him, ultimately, Him alone. Fall, we turned away from that and chose to worship ourselves, crafted for ourselves our own idols. Redemption, God is redeeming us back for the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1, and all over the New Testament. Redemption is rooted in the praise of glory. So here's, here's what it means. John Piper famously says, worship exists, excuse me, missions exist because worship does not. So redemption is not fueled in you getting saved and going to heaven. Redemption is not fuel, fueled in you getting your life better and healing and fixing your family. All those things are great things that happen, but ultimately missions and redemption exist because worship doesn't. Because this world is supposed to be glorifying God and it's not. Because Lexington is supposed to be bowing the knee to Jesus and it's not. And so. Redemption and evangelism is our effort to to, to invite the world to praise this creator and to restore the worship that the creation was supposed to offer unto God. And then consummation will be the return of worship where the glory of God covers the land as the waters cover the sea. Where every tongue, tribe, and nation will praise God. So really the whole thing can be spoken of as worship. I created you to worship me. You're not worshiping me. I'll save you so that you can worship me and so that you can tell others and the whole world will worship me. That's what he's doing. He's gaining back his worship. So broadly defined, worship is this labor of praise that we are to give to God in all things that we do. But when we use the term, what are we typically talking about? We're typically talking about an hour and a half that we do on the Lord's day. And I'll just say this, that's not necessarily wrong. Because the scriptures speak of worship both in this broad sense and in the more narrow, particularly defined sense. And that is, that's been there from all the beginning. All of life is worship unto God, but there are also unique and special times of worship of God. And that was in the original creation before the fall. Uh, Do you remember... um, do you remember in Scripture uh, it, it, before the fall? Do you remember what instigated the fall? Is um, Adam and Eve said, we heard the sound of you walking in the garden and we were afraid and so we hid ourselves. Now, that, of course, the main point of that is about sin and the fall. But, but, but what's interesting about that is, is God not omnipresent? Yes, of course He is. Is God not there, so to speak, before that? Yes, but even before the fall, there seemed to be these unique moments of fellowship and worship of God. We heard the sound of you. Now, before the fall, they would come running to that sound and have this rapturous moment of worship with God. But they were set aside unique times of fellowship and worship of God where we just stop everything and praise God. John Frame explains it. By the way, John Frame really influences me on, on, on my thinking of worship, so I'm just throwing that out so, um you know that intellectually, um, but John Frame tells it like this: suppose your um, suppose your job is to uh, serve in a palace, and um, and everything you do in that in, in a king's palace is 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 important. It's for the king. It's noble work. Uh, when you're cleaning the palace, it is service unto the king. It is you, When you step into the palace, you, you, you know that you're on sacred ground and all that stuff. All that you do there, all that you do there in the palace is significant and important. But, but then, then there'll be those moments when the king walks by. And, and you bow. And you stop everything you're doing. And you are in the immediate presence and there is something more significant about those moments. It's the difference between serving in the palace and that moment where the king walks by and he looks at you and you stop and you bow and you honor him. And that's how you can think about. The difference between all of life is worship and service unto our king, but there are those moments. And those moments are the corporate worship of God's people. Uh, let me give you just kind of a brief summation of it in Scripture. Uh, of, we're talking about specific, particularly defined corporate worship. Um, like I said, even pre-fall you you, you see this pattern Um, in the Old Testament, of course, you have Exodus 25-28 through is the tabernacle, right? Where God wanted, wanted Israel to construct a meeting house for unique purposes of worship. All of life's worship, but I've got a tabernacle where something different happens there. And then, of course, under Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, you have the construction of the temple. A permanent House, much like the tabernacle, but a permanent residence for God's people to come and worship Him. What happened there in the temple, sacrificial worship, that's of course what's most known for, is the the sacrifices, the sacrificial worship, uh, but also prayers, teaching, confession, vows, singing of praises. This was done with God's people together in the temple. And then this develops, and honestly, it's kind of obscure how this did develop. But um, what happens by the time we get to the New Testament is there's this system of synagogues. And the synagogue would work more like our churches work. Um, more like we think of what we do here. They, they held services on Sabbath. Um, there were no sacrifices. Sacrifices were, were still reserved only for the temple, so you couldn't do the sacrifices in the, in the synagogue. Um, there were services held on the Sabbath, um, there was prayer, there was study and teaching of Scripture, there was song. Uh, Jesus affirms this by himself attending services in the synagogues. He taught in the synagogues and so forth. And that synagogue system, for reasons that we're not going to get into, if you want to kind of understand how this all works, you can go back and listen to Covenant Theology last year. But that, that synagogue system kind of is what became the New Testament church. From the beginning, Christians met on the new Sabbath... The Day of Resurrection, uh, so so it moved to Sunday, the first day of the week, the Day of Resurrection is, is, is they believe the resurrection changed their Sabbath, and the main focus of that time was prayer, song, the study of Scripture, um, both the both the um, Old Testament we have, but also the Apostolic teachings, um, and the breaking of bread, the sacrament, partaking of sacrament. Um, but, as we will see, other things were included in New Testament worship. So what we see in Scripture is that all of life is worship, but there are unique set-aside times of holy worship before the fall, um, within the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and this lecture series is going to focus on that particular definition of worship. Now, By way of introduction here, what I want to do is consider the governing rules of worship. That's, that's how I'm going to introduce the whole thing, is... Is by I mean I suppose all that has introduced it, but but I'm going to get us going down this road by talking about um, by talking about the governing rules of that particular set aside time of worship. Now, right off the bat, you might say, "Hold on, God has rules." That's news to me, and I would say, "Yes, worship is regulated by preferences, just not yours." Right. It's worship of God, so we must ask God how he wants to be worshipped. Now, already we're flipping the paradigm here, right? Already I'm saying worship does not exist for your preferences or even the preferences of outside, Allah, the seeker-sensitive movement, all this stuff. No, no, we, we do consider preferences here, but they're God's preferences. Worship exists for his preferences. And you say, now, hold on. God has preferences? God has rules? Absolutely he does. He's very serious about them. Genesis 4, God did not look with favor upon the worship sacrifice of Cain. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, you want to know if God has preferences, read that passage. Nadab, the Bahu, are destroyed because they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord contrary to his command. He said, worship me this way? They said, we'll throw in a little of this. Struck dead. Exodus 20, the first four of the Ten Commandments, deal with his preferences of worship. Number one, forbids the worship of any other god. Number two, forbids the crafting of idols for worship. Even if you were to use an idol for him, the Protestants were big on this with the Catholics, obviously. Number three, forbids the defaming of God's name. The antithesis of worship is to take the Lord's name in vain. Number four, forbids... Or actually requires, excuse me, that we remember the Sabbath as a holy day devoted unto worship. So already we see applications emerging from this. Modern worship considers my preferences and the preferences of outsiders without really giving a thought to the preferences of God. So what are the preferences of God? What 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 are the, the instructions, the, the rules of worship? How does God want to be worshipped, in other words? This was a huge question coming out of the Reformation because the Latin Mass had become full of wrongful practices. Many of you don't know, yes, the, yes, the uh, Reformation was motivated by justification by faith alone and the recapturing of the gospel of free grace, but it had a huge... It was one big worship war. <laughs> and it was because the Latin Mass was just out of control with all of these crazy practices the Reformation was in large part motivated by worship. And what came out of worship, and this is very important. You maybe have never heard this term before, but it is very important to our tradition. And you'll hear me reference it quite a bit. What came out of the Reformation is this thing called the regulative principle of worship. Regulative principle of worship. What is the regulative principle of worship? It is this. Whatever elements of worship are prescribed and demonstrated in Scripture are the only way we are to worship. God has preferences. What are His preferences? Well, we should probably turn to the Bible. What do we see in the Bible? The Scriptures have... What I'm saying here is that the Scriptures have more than a veto power when it comes to worship, saying you're not allowed to do something because Scripture forbids it. True, but it goes further. The Scriptures have prescriptive power. When it comes to worship, you are only allowed to do what the Scripture prescribes. Throughout the Scripture, when you survey Scripture, God is always telling us how He wants to be worshiped. And the regulative principle of worship says that's how He is to be worshiped. Westminster Confession of Faith, 21.1, says this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself. I'll tell you how I want to be worshiped. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Now, this does not mean, I mean, regulative principle of worship, what have I got myself into at this church? I mean, this does not mean like no flexibility, no creativity no contextualization of worship practices. It only means that God has regulated worship to certain practices. Within those practices, there is freedom. For example, the regulative principle prescribes the singing of songs in worship. So that's a principle. you got to sing in worship. Scriptures are very clear on that. It does not prescribe style or genre or instruments or culture and so forth. The regulative principle prescribes prayer in worship. It does not prescribe the words of your prayers, the languages of your prayers, the frequency of prayer, and so forth. So what the regulative principle does, it should be viewed as boundaries of worship that create kind of the field of play. And within that field of play, you are are free to worship the Lord. However, the leadership of the church calls us to worship. So what does the regulative principle prescribe in worship? I'll close with that, and then in the coming weeks, we will unpack a lot of this. Yes, we will get into the music. Um, Yes, we'll get into some of our practices that are more controversial, all that stuff. But for today, what does the regulative principle prescribe in worship, or say it this way, biblically speaking, what are God's preferences and thus appropriate for the context of holy worship? Um, There's a little bit of debate here, but not much. Um, Here's what we see in Scripture. Uh, Greetings and benediction in the Lord's name. That was common in worship, and it's common all throughout Scripture, that there is a a greeting in the Lord's name and a benediction in the Lord's name. This is why announcements, welcoming visitors, things like that is very appropriate in worship. Because there is a welcome in the name of Jesus. We're glad you're here. Um, And there is a benediction in the name of Jesus. Public reading of Scripture, obviously, is paramount to worship. So pub- the Scripture should be publicly read in worship. Preaching and teaching of Scripture goes without saying. Preaching and teaching of the scriptures not just read, but expounded upon by an ordained minister of the church. Preaching and teaching of Scripture. Prayer, of course. Uh, but again, what we see in Scripture is pray, prayers of praise, petition, lament, confession of sin, repentance, thanksgiving, intercession, and we can go on and on and on with the different types of prayers we see, but you got to pray and worship. you got to pray and worship. Song, of course, you've got to sing and worship. Again, the regulative principle does not say, this is how you, try to, you, this is how you must sing and this is how you can't sing, or anything like that. Um, there are guiding principles that we're going to get into about that. Um, it does go beyond regulative principle. We, 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 there are guiding principles of our, um, song, and we'll get into all that. But, sing, Vows. Vows, in the context of corporate worship, is where God's people would take their vows. The vows of baptism. Uh, reception of new members. We had them take their vows in here. In fact, that was a change that we made because we thought um, before they were taking their vows before the session, and we thought that that should have been done in the context of corporate worship. So vows, um, ordination church officers, the vows will take place today. Marriage in the early church, obviously marriage ceremonies took place in corporate worship. Um, uh, now we got Instagram, so we can't do that, so we got we got to make this thing nice and fun, but we still view marriage as a worship service because vows take place there. So uh, vows of marriage, uh, vows of repentance, every week you take a vow. I think this week is do you repent of your own authority? We do. Do you return to the authority of Christ? We do. That's a vow you took of repentance before God. So we take vows in worship. Confession of faith, that's Public confession of a new faith, so when there's a new convert, they make their public confession in the context of corporate worship, and that is they repeated confession of the saints, the ongoing faith of our saints. That's why we do confession of faith. Sacraments, of course. Uh, we do um, is sa- the circumcision and the sacrificial system. Um, uh, the older covenant is replaced by baptism and communion and, that, and that's where we do that we do the sacraments here in corporate worship, by the way that's, that's we have a rich theology of this, that we do not believe it is appropriate for you and your Bible study to get together and serve each other communion or for you to serve yourself communion in the morning as a devotion um, we, we do believe that communion the sacrament, should be partaken of in the context of corporate worship collection of offerings, we bring our gifts and sacrifices to God and His purposes, we see that all throughout scripture um, how about this one? Expression of fellowship. Every, every, um, every, uh, chur- every, wor- every worship service in, in, in the New Testament church had some form of expression of fellowship. They call it the exchange with the holy kiss. We don't make you kiss each other, but we do make you shake hands. And for a moment, look each other in your eye and say, the peace of Jesus Christ be with you. Um, that's a significant moment. Where we are expressing our fellowship with one another, publicly recognizing and giving thanks for this unique fellowship within the community. Um, things like that fall under this expression of fellowship. It would be like testimonies or commissions, just acknowledging the fellowship of the church. And the last thing is church discipline. The early church did church discipline in worship. The verdicts of church discipline were announced publicly in worship. And you need to know that we will do that. Um, Church discipline is is we do that um, behind closed doors. It's very secretive, stuff like that. But the verdicts of the church are announced in the corporate worship, and there's reasons for that. So, the, the regulative principle does not mean you have to do these things a certain way. They are principles of worship that guide how we enact them. But the regulative principle does mean that we have to do these things. But we don't have to do them every single time. But we have to do these things. And and this word gets controversial. To the modern church, the regulative principle means that we cannot just do worship however we want. Whatever I want to do, that's what I'm going to do and call it worship. We do worship according to the preferences of our God. He is the one who is being worshipped. I am not. I want us to consider him, not me. And so the regulative principle uh, devises boundaries from which we can worship outside of these boundaries is not appropriate. For the worship of the living God. Implication, there are things that are not appropriate for the worship of the living God. And we're out of time, so I won't get into those. How convenient. Uh, We got three weeks to talk about this stuff. Come back, and we're going to get into the details of it. Let me pray. And um, if you're going to this service, stay. If you're not, get out. In like one minute, get out. Like 30 seconds, get out of this sanctuary if you're in the first service. Love y'all, but leave. Bye. Lord, thank you for this time. Jesus, we commit now holy worship to you. You are good, and we have gathered to worship you. Bless the second service as you did the first. In Jesus' name, amen.